if someone is trying to figure out how they're programmed, what's a good way to sort of examine the framework that you operate in? I don't think many people are going to like this answer, but I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) I can't wait. (laughs) Write it down. Journal. Okay. There is a So journal how I think. Yeah. So I would, ironically, and I would do it first thing in the morning. Imagine that you sort of go bleh (laughs) and you sort of throw out all of the extraneous things because it's the most sort of free form way that you wake up, right? Nothing else has happened. You have no other interference. I mean, you could do it first thing in the day, or I would say even at the end of the day, because it would be the antithesis to some degree of that. You've had the day. It's been up. It's been down. Write it down. Bandwidth for Change Log is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash ChangeLog. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. If you have specific questions or concerns, we encourage you to consult a health professional in your local area. From Changelog Media, this is Brain Science, a podcast for the curious. We're exploring the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and what it means to be human. It's brain science applied, not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to transform our lives? I'm Adam Stachowiak. And I'm Dr. Marielle Reese. What is a mental framework? Well... A mental framework is the way in which you learn how to make sense of yourself and the world. Imagine sort of like a puzzle and how you fit pieces together. So it's this um, interaction between your experiences in the world and yourself and the way in which you see them fitting together. So if everyone's unique, you're not me, I'm not you, we're not the same, we don't have the same life. Would it be safe to say that we have infinite worldviews? That could possibly be. I mean, if you think about it, um, similar to that of growing up with siblings in a household, right? There's some general, I mean, generally speaking, you have the same parents with full-blooded siblings. And so you've gone through the same things. However, the way in which you both respond and or make sense of your experience in those situations is definitely not the same. Why is it important to develop this mental framework? Why is it maybe even important to understand that you have one or that you're creating one? Well, I think it's really important because one, like we talk about the name it to tame it, the awareness that your mind is always putting pieces together, sort of like it's always accommodating new data. And if you aren't considerate of or around your sort of even biases, hypotheses, underlying beliefs, you don't recognize that you're actually putting things together that may not go together. You know, I I think a lot about this within the realm of like sports or high level athletics, wherein um, people are trained around resiliency. And, you know, there's a lot of practicing the fundamentals because you have to get really good at the basics in order to then do the advanced things wherein the basics are so 
routine that they're so integrated that it's just like, this is the way to work we go. Like, this is just the play my brain runs. And then with that going, every time I show up for a game or, you know, an event, how do I make sense of it if I don't win? Do I think, do I look at myself as a failure or as though I have failed? Is that the way I interpret that experience? Mm -hmm. And so the framework is how you respond to things like that Well, is, is your way of thinking. Yeah. And I would say even it's an interpretation. So if I were to presume that I failed in, you know, I didn't win a game or I didn't win first place, that would have implications for my choices thereafter because it's probably going to be tethered to some ill or negative feelings, right? which wouldn't necessarily make me prone to go repeat that activity. Is the good question here to answer or to ask, how have we been programmed? Because you get the mental framework, which is, I guess, the way in which you've allowed yourself or have been programmed by the world, conditioning. Mm -hmm. And then the question might be, you know, for our listeners to consider as they're listening to this conversation here is, how have you been programmed? Yes. And to consider that because a lot of that subconsciously happens, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm programmed and don't even know it to some degree. Like my biases aren't always revealed to me. Yeah. And my way of thinking isn't always super clear to me until I take the time to be more aware and examine it. Yes. And so I see this a lot. And even if I, I take it way back, if any of you are familiar with Pavlov and Pavlov's dogs around conditioning with a dog salivating at the sound of a bell. And so it was basically around the way in which this dog was reinforced to do a particular behavior with two things that didn't necessarily go together, but went together for him so that you no longer needed that same cue in order to have that response. If I put together a bell and food, the dog began to go, oh, I, I start salivating because I know I'm going to get fed. Well, bells don't typically cause dogs to salivate, but they did thereafter in this case. And so I am very aware of this given the state of our affairs globally in recognizing that all people are having different responses and a lot to do with, you know, either past experiences which were negative and the way in which they made sense of that or what the emotional impact of a past experience was and then how they're trying to navigate it now given that it wasn't the past, we're living in the current, but their body is still, or their brain is still running the play as if the past event were live. Yeah. So that's how trauma works. Yeah. It doesn't know time really. It's like, oh, that hurt then. It hurts now. It will hurt tomorrow. <laughs> and I have to act this way because of it. Yeah. And I think that it's interesting because, you know, even talking about trauma, like I want our listeners to be considerate that we've all been traumatized in in some way or another. And so a lot of people, like even um, Michael Gervais, he's a sports psychologist for the Seahawks, references this in terms of big T trauma versus little t trauma. And big T trauma, like being legitimate abuse or a way in which you were directly exposed to some sort of threat, either you witnessed or directly experienced sort of the potential for harm to you or harm to somebody else, okay? So it could be like in war, it can be childhood abuse, it could be um, first responders, things of that nature, as opposed to little t, wherein it still was traumatic, meaning it was upsetting, but it didn't have the same sort of gravity or um, extremity as 
the big T trauma. And so one of the key things in that is when we go through something traumatic that, you know, we get activated in the sense of fight, flight, or freeze. And so I can I can feel helpless, like there's no way out because legitimately in those ex- past experiences, it was like I couldn't escape. And so now we have different constraints. Like for a number of people, it looks like shelter in place. Yeah. And going, oh my word, my brain is telling me I feel like I can't get out. <laughs> And now I'm reactive to that way in which I it feels familiar and now it feels dangerous. So this is where I want to look back and go, imagine that like sort of our mental framework literally were a, a puzzle with a picture and that it's not a static thing. We can change and modify the way in which we make sense of both ourselves and how we respond to our environment. What's interesting about the the bubble, I suppose, we're all creating to some degree with this shelter in place. And there's a, a large majority of the world that is in shelter in place and in that sort of mode, like e- either self-induced because they have desires to, you know, stay home, stay safe, the whole thing that is the mantra out there, um, or they're directed by local officials or governments to you know, to, to act this way in, in uh, respect for humanity and stopping the spread of coronavirus. And what's interesting is that we, as this happens, we're conditioning ourselves or programming ourselves, this sort of mental framework that outside bad, inside good. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like anytime I go out, I'm, you know, essentially in a traumatic situation. Sure. I'm not a first responder. I'm not on the front lines in a hospital dealing with direct COVID patients and, you know, helping them through to survival. But in any given moment, outside my house is risk. Sure. And that's traumatic. Yeah, it is. And it's interesting because one of the strategies I talk about a lot with patients is when it comes to anxiety, that it's really important to differentiate between things that have occurred in the past that were threatening and the not active threat of the present. And the problem legitimately is we do have an actual threat (laughs) today, right? And so how do I make sense of it and how do I sort of stay grounded given there is something that could potent that has the potential to be incredibly dangerous and, and maybe not just to me, but to somebody that I care about. And so how do I go about navigating myself and how do I make sense of even being um, set apart from everyone else, right? Because we've talked about the value of social relationships. Isolation, yeah. Yeah. Often the remedy is connection. And if you can't connect in the most meaningful way, which is physically, not that you have to give somebody a hug or you know intimately touch, but the point is this human connection has a lot of uh, exchange, Yeah, it does. And so it's interesting, even the fact that we're using the word social distancing so often, because I would prefer to use the word physical distancing, because I definitely don't want people to be more disengaged or distant socially, right? But rather physical proximity is what is different. Yeah. Hmm. It's it's terrible, too, because... Not only do you have the threat of illness, right, to you, 
your loved ones. A lot of people are dealing with financial hardships and uncertainty around that. So you've got like several layers of traumatic things happening that don't have a clear end in sight. And I think the reason why we're talking about this mental framework is to is to help people understand their conditioning. Yes. How they're being programmed and how they're actively today being programmed through the scenario we're all in. Yes. Yeah, precisely. I mean, because we're we're not threatened in the same way we once upon a time were in terms of lions, tigers, and bears. But the lion, tigers, and bears in our world literally is our our financial stability because that's how we go about navigating our world and being able to barter and manage the things we need like shelter. And so that is threatening. And so my body and my brain are going to be reactive around it. I've talked about this before, but one of the things that's really important when we look at psychological health is this notion of cognitive flexibility. And I like to talk about it like yoga for your brain. You want to be able to stretch or move or flex as opposed to being very cognitively rigid or really thinking in more binary terms. If I think that either I'm safe or unsafe, I'm sick or I'm well, I'm capable or I'm incapable, I am apt to struggle more. And so if you can recognize like a mental framework is a form, sort of this abstract, intangible form that we have that enables us to go about our lives and our days. And there's some of the ways in which we sort of create constraints that don't help us to adapt when changes like this occur. We might go deeper into the subject at some point in the future, but can you kind of go one layer further on the dangers of absolute thinking, this sort of black and white thinking, either binary, as you mentioned? Yeah. Well, it really doesn't capture, I mean, and bear in mind when I'm talking about this cognitive flexibility, this is more so in adults. I mean, kids are prone to do this just because their level of abstraction is different than ours. But we need it because much of um, life is very abstract. I think about so often when people make judgments of other people about how they shoulda, woulda, coulda done X, Y, or Z in a critical situation. And it's easy to have those judgments. However, you don't necessarily know all of the reasons or potentially even have all of the data around why that person might choose this response in this particular scenario. Mm -hmm. And so if I don't have flexibility to see it from any other perspective, it really impedes my ability to relate with others because I can't necessarily give merit to another's perspective because it's not my own. It also, I think about it, there's um, sort of theories of moral development. And so I have a way or psychologists have come up with the sort of way in which we actually build our ability to make sense around morality. And because, again, not everybody thinks the same way. Hence why right. people are reacting to the possibility and feeling threatened and therefore going out and taking action around making sure that they have measures to protect themselves. Yeah. If someone is trying to figure out how they're programmed, what they like, what they don't like, you know, what's a good way to sort of examine the framework that you operate in? 
I don't think many people are going to like this answer, but I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) I can't wait. (laughs) Write it down. (laughs) Journal. Okay. There is a So journal how I think. Yeah. So I would ironically, and I would do it first thing in the morning. Imagine that you sort of go bleh (laughs) and you sort of throw out all of the extraneous things because it's the most sort of free form way that you wake up, right? Nothing else has happened. You have no other interference. But Mm -hmm. I mean, you could do it first thing in the day, or I would say even at the end of the day, because it would be the antithesis to some degree of that. You've had the day, it's been up, it's been down, like write it down. And the reason being is that you then have the opportunity to look back and look at themes in what you've written down yeah, and go, gosh, I continue to say the same thing. Huh. I feel this same way every time I do fill in the blank. Mm. What you're suggesting is be a scientist, collect data, analyze it right. about yourself. Yeah. And so I don't have somebody walking around like taking play by play. And I'm not always aware of my internal dialogue. Like we reference it a lot of like self-dialogue or you know, sometimes we have this way of talking to ourselves that's very critical, like our inner critic. And so I would say something to myself that I would never say to a friend, Mm. but I'm going to hold myself to this expectation. Like I think about it, you know, really what is at the forefront of so many people right now is change, that everybody is having to change the way in which they would typically operate, right? Like even a lot of people, um, listening had their way in which they would listen to the podcast, be it on their way to work, which maybe yeah. they're not going to work, right? Or they're not going to school or, you know, all of these different changes. And so it just makes it harder for them to sort of do themselves and manage themselves in the same way they did because they're taking more energy to sort of learn and accommodate around the changes they have to make if they're going to keep going. If you've read the book, Who Moved My Cheese? I want to know. You can come in Slack and say hello or Twitter. That works too. But I'm really curious because you mentioned change. Who has gone since we've had that recent episode where we talked about it has read that book because that's what that book is all about is handling, reacting to, dealing with, making sense of change. The whole book. I mean, it's it's a four-hour read, if that, and amazing if you want to kind of understand a bird's eye view of change. Yeah. And look, this is fundamentally how we're designed. We are designed to adapt. And that's why um, being aware of this mental framework helps me be more intentional about what I do in response to, especially things that create negative feelings for me. Yeah. Right. I've heard a lot of people sort of reference this time, like I can go through it or I can grow through it. Right. And I don't know if do you do you grow very much, Adam? Do you guys garden? Little, little no, no, we don't grow anything. Honestly, we grow kids, <laughs> right? Um, not vegetables though, or well, I, I suppose we have grass and some some landscaping, but that's about all we grow. Right. Well, it's interesting because I think about that process of planting or sort of sowing and reaping, and even I can talk about it as it relates to to kids, but. There is this degree of patience. And, yeah, that's and, true. And and really adapting because in the case of planting food, are you in charge of the weather? No. No. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, you can be. 
well, in a controlled environment. Sure. So that could be argued. But the point is, yeah, I get it. If you're relying only on rain, then the answer is no, you don't have control. Right. And so like this is coming back to some of that binary thinking. If I presume I have all the charge in my life, like that isn't true. I do have some control, but not all control. So imagine I am always operating under certain constraints and that there is a process to anything I do, be it raising, you know, food or raising children. I always talk about this a lot with moms in terms of, you know, you plant and you plant and you plant and you like repeat, repeat. And then it's like five years later, you're like, oh my gosh, it took root. Like, I'm, I finally... I can't believe they believe that because I said that 17,000 times. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so, interestingly enough, those are some of the things that are sticky for each one of us. I'm sure if everybody took a second and I'm like, tell me something that you heard all the time growing up. What was a statement your parents said to you or what was a sort of thing that you was sort of ingrained in you about how you operate. Mm. Something very silly, but uh, don't cross your eyes. They'll stay that way. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, like stupid stuff that seems silly, but, and you extrapolate that across other. And then what's really more interesting is that your parents were programmed by their parents and yeah. onward up. Right. And some of us have, uh, grandparents who lived in the, the depression and you know there's a lot that the way that impacted society then impacted the way they treated resources and family and finances and all that good stuff and so those things get passed down through generations and they become you know people are more frugal than they may should be because they had parents who were through a a traumatic financial hardship like the depression for example Right. And so that that had emotion. There was legitimate threat, which caused an emotional response, which then got embedded, which then was sort of like never questioned, right? Like I just- This well, is true. Right? Like I'm always going to keep things. I don't let things go because if I do, I might not ever replace them. Right. When you say that, that reminded me of the show Hoarders. Sure. And there's some extreme situations there, and, and it's it's a shame we actually watch that show to some degree for entertainment, because it is kind of Ugh. entertaining, I suppose, to see how extreme people can be about their belongings and their health conditions and their hygiene and sanitary of their home. And the root cause for all those situations, and I've watched many episodes less about entertainment and more about just, I guess, being human, is trauma, some sort of traumatic yes. event usually loss, yes. you know, of a loved one or something like that. And now they hold on to everything right? because they lost something really valuable and they never want to lose anything of value again. So they value everything and nothing leaves. Well, and who gets to be in charge of when it leaves? They do. Yeah. Which, They're in control. Which they didn't have before. What's really more interesting, and I don't want to harp on this too far, but how extreme um, – their environments can get you know, their homes. Sure. You know, really, really dirty, really, really, you know, unsanitary, almost no cleaning, almost even like they're trying to harm themselves indirectly without consciously doing it. They're not like intentionally, it doesn't seem in most cases, 
but it's really interesting how trauma affects us. And that show is an extreme example of the ramifications of trauma. Yeah. Well, and so I think I've said this before, but that that way in which it's not our eyes that actually do the seeing. Our, our rods and cones simply take in light, but it's our brain that runs the program that puts the that together and assigns a word and a meaning to that. Right. So literally those people don't see it the way somebody else sees it. And it's protective. It's like, again, imagine I am building, I am constructing my brick wall so that nothing can harm me. And mm. so if someone would says say to me, like, there's a problem with your wall, I'd be like, um, no, you need to go build one too. Right. Right. And so I'm going to be far more possessive around those defense strategies so that I stay safe. What we're seeing now is uh, is a different ramification of trauma. We're seeing grief happen. We're seeing depression happen. You know, in many cases, it's easy to sort of have this grieving the future, this future loss that hasn't quite come yet, this uncertainty, the grief that comes from looking at your calendar and seeing things on there that are not occurring anymore. It could be uh, something with your kids. It could be something with work. It could be a life goal, whatever it might be, a vacation, who knows, but there's things that were planned that aren't happening that we're grieving. Yes, most certainly. And so, you know, how do we make sense of that? What do we do with that loss and how do we respond to it? You know, I mean, it in no way is helpful to sort of minimize any person's struggle. Because look, not all of us are encountering the same stressors. Yeah. We all are encountering stress, but how we respond to whatever it is, if it's a loss of some expected, you know, anticipated event or break or engagement with friends or some routine I've done annually over and over again, or it's, you know, the finances or it's the health of either ourselves or someone we, we care about. Um, There's, there's loss and it doesn't help to say, well, that isn't true or I shouldn't feel that way. The way we do it is by setting that grief alongside other things we know to be true. Look, if you can imagine, the reason I I even like the word framework is because it provides literally a form for how we think. It would be really weird if I created some sort of recipe and I had no container and I put it in the oven. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. I was going to go back to your grow analogy, which is like plants or or, or, uh, tomatoes often need you know, they grow along a vine. Yeah, they're yeah. Right. they they need that lattice to connect to, and right. without it, they just kind of grow everywhere with no constraints and no framework. Given a framework, they can grow in a in a way that's desired from the grower. Yes, and you're the grower, right? You're the grower of your life, <laughs> right? And so, if you can imagine, our framework is really where the internal and the external come together and create a shape. You can always change that shape. That's the the great thing. And go, look, we've all been trained. Like nobody is immune. And some of the things that people have experienced that really were, you know, painful and traumatic, that's really hard for them to continue to deal with. And this is a way in which people get activated. 
you know, it's interesting. When I was in graduate school, I had an opportunity to work on a um, a program specifically for, um, in this case, it was women with co-occurring disorders, so substance abuse and trauma. And the challenge in treating this population of individuals was that if they started to try to work on the trauma, they would get reactivated and then go back to drinking because that's how they coped. But then you take away drinking and then they're activated back by their trauma. And so they literally had this double-edged sword where they they didn't know how or where to go to change things. And thankfully, you know, there was a program that someone created to go, hey, here's how we can do both at the same time and support you and provide a scaffolding so that you can have a different life and that you're not imprisoned by your history. I think about like doing anything. If you need to do pretty much anything, cook a recipe, get up early. Like I was just watching a rerun of today's show because they're actually running previously recorded versions of it. Whatever. It doesn't matter. The point is, is I saw Mark Wahlberg and uh, Al Roker uh, and others on there talk about this morning routine. And it talked about like Mark Wahlberg's recipe for getting up. Right. So I may never have the hope to get up at 2.30 a.m. like he does and have the routine he does. But if I was motivated enough to change and I saw his recipe, I might be able to follow it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So without this framework, without this recipe, like you said, imagine trying to cook something with no container, just shoving it in the oven. That's not going to happen. But at the same time, wouldn't it be easier to cook in general if you had the recipe? Sure. Almost anybody can be a cook. If they have the right utensils, the right containers, the right materials, and also the recipe, they need those things. Those are all key components. That's so fascinating that you share that because I think about it, you know, for my experience, having been raised, I was never in the house. So my mom was an amazing cook. She grew up cooking all the time. But my mental framework was I never practiced It wasn't a skill I cultivated as a child because I wasn't home. I was out doing other things. So I went and built other skills that, you know, were helpful and fun and great, but they weren't in that lane. And so I could say that my framework was I'm not a good cook or I can't cook, which, you know, it's hilarious because now, you know, one of my children, God bless them always tells me like, mom, you should open a restaurant. (laughs) 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 Which, Like, thank you, child. I'm glad you appreciate what I cook. Well, let me echo that because we have a son who every time we cook, almost every time he's like, if I led the cooking or or my wife led the cooking, either of us, or it could be both of us, mom, dad, you're the best cook ever. (laughs) It's like, that's the best, right? You want that kind of kid. Right? Well, and it's funny because my one of my children says like you're the best mom ever and i'm like well you i am your only mom like yeah. so i'm an n of 1 she still meant it but you were like eh whatever <laughs> well <laughs> it's it's funny because what i'm getting at is this way in which our experiences have the capacity to teach us right and we've right. all we've all learned things in the past but considering Like, do you reflect on that? Are you aware of that? And is it working for you? That's the value in looking at your mental framework. 
it's sort of like we all build these associations or imagine I learned to speak one language and then I moved to a different country. It would not help me to keep speaking the language from my native country in a new one unless I had the same one. (laughs) True. Right? So I have to be adaptable and considerate of even the other ways in which people interface that isn't how I learned. Yeah. The driver for me is this aspect of ability to change, this hope, which is a key ingredient for life, right? Without hope, we wither. And so hope that we can change. No matter where you're at, whatever your bias is, whatever your framework is, whatever your concerns are, traumas, depression, these things can all, I mean, and maybe you can speak to the all aspect of that. I tend to speak in absolutes, but the aspect that change is possible, that's what keeps me going. Mm-hmm. That even though I may not be where I am today or where I, where I want to be at today, for whatever reason, not so much professionally, but just in my framework, how I think, mm-hmm. doesn't mean that I can't begin to cultivate new skills and change by examining, by writing it down, mm-hmm. by being more aware. Exactly. And consider, you know, the board of advisors, like who are your people who you allow to give you feedback around who you are and how you think? Because, you know, we're all incredibly nuanced. I mean, this is why I love people and I'm fascinated by people's minds and how they made sense of their world and what to do about it, right? Because everybody has had unique experiences and going, you know, I can see how you put those two things together, but you know what? I don't think those serve you well in the way in which they did at the time that you needed them. You know, a very extreme and somewhat odd analogy would be like, you know, most adults, I mean, many adults, we'll try to be considerate of language, you know, don't continue to wear diapers as they did when they were infants. Right. So it would be odd if you didn't have that need to wear that, right? Or, you know, using all these sort of adaptive equipment or ways in which we sort of have support, right? You get injured, you use crutches, you might need a wheelchair, you might need a scooter because it allows for support as you heal. Right. And so, look, I think there are a ton of things in life that happen that are aversive, unpleasant, unwanted, and all of those things. But I don't want people to to get rid of the opportunity amidst the unpleasantness of the experience. Because you could learn something. You could go, I had no idea I could shift my perspective and actually see that this is an opportunity to do something or respond in a way that is different from how I've responded in the past. It comes back to, are you going through it or are you growing through it? And I love that because you say, what experiences are you having that you can learn from. I think that in, in in some cases it's hard to see and to learn amidst, you know, traumatic issues, grief, depression, you know, uncertainty like uh, we may be going through now. But the point is, is that you do grow through things and there's opportunity for growth. There's, while it may not always seem easy to say, there there tends to be some silver lining in all situations. And I try to be the optimist and see the good mm-hmm. versus only seeing the bad. Like, is the glass half full or is it half empty? I tend to think 
It's half full. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I want our listeners to be aware of there is, too, a difference in how we think and how we feel. So I can be optimistic and yet at the same time feel op- apprehensive, uncertain. And I might even ride waves of like, oh, gosh, like, I'm not sure I can do this. Or even, you know, just the sheer frustration associated with the rapid rate of change. Mm-hmm. I mean, whenever, you know, I, I've i described this time a lot like living like with Garmin right? And you keep having to turn and change direction and it keeps talking back at you, like recalculating, recalculating. And then it's like, there's no road, turn around. You can't go that way. Right. (laughs) And like your inner voice, your Garmin inner voice. Yes. Yes. And you know what? It's like, you just have to also be patient with yourself as you're trying new things, because remember that it takes energy to acclimate and adjust. There is such a thing as decision fatigue, right? Because it's using more resources. And if I'm looking at holding options A, B, C, and D simultaneously and figuring out which piece would fit best as given where I am right now and where I want to be and where I was, that takes energy, it's a lot and to hold. It is. It is. And so, of course, I'm going to drop a ball in another area because I'm allocating energy and resources to this other thing that is a priority at this time. I think that it can be when you can see the way in which how you make sense of the world can work for you, like it gets to be fun and you begin to see things as an adventure. I think we've talked about this in um, past episodes about for the love and like, why do we do certain things? And, you know, why are, why are some people really heeding the shelter in place? It's, it's not just because some random person, some appointed elected official said, do it. It's for the love, for the love of humankind, for the love of their family themselves, like for the greater good. I think that's where the fun sets in because you can begin to embrace something that you might typically see as aversive and go, wow, it becomes this sort of opportunity for discovery and going, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt or create pain, but not all pain is created equal. All right. Now it's time to share your thoughts on developing a mental framework with us. You can do it in Slack. You can do it on Twitter. You do it in the comments. All are available to you and all work just fine. This is episode 16, so head to changelog.com slash brain science slash 16. Share your thoughts with us there. Of course, you can join our Slack community. It's totally free to you. Head to changelog.com slash community. Hang with us in the Brain Science channel. And of course, we're on Twitter. Tweet at us at BrainScienceFM. Huge thanks to our partners, Fastly, Rollbar, and Linode. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our beats. And last but not least, if you want to hear more shows like this, subscribe to our master feed. That's how you get all of our podcasts. Head to changelog.com slash master or go into your podcast app and search for Changelog Master. You'll find us. It's one feed to rule them all, get all of our shows, as well as some extras that only hit the master feed. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you again soon. Thank you.